0: Hey, gang, it's John. So we're starting a new thing over here. It's going to be called Book Club. I don't know about you guys, but as a music lover, obviously, I get turned on to certain books that are out there. And some of them are big ones. Some of them are kind of under the radar. I thought it might be fun, if and whenever possible, to read one of these books and invite the author to come on the show and talk about it with us. This is our way of sort of honoring them of trying to alert all of you to their great books that are out there so you'll get to turned on to them too i don't know how frequently we're going to do this but uh we're doing it now and we invited on jeffrey lee campbell who <clears throat> the story is really amazing he wrote the book do stand so close to me and it's about his year being totally plucked from obscurity to tour with sting in 1988 Amazing, amazing story and uh, I thought it would be really fantastic to bring him on to kind of share that story with all of you. It's a super great book, and he is a really nice guy. Now, to change things up, I brought on my friend Dave Carruth. You guys might remember him. He, was on, he came on our Christmas show with us. Dave's a really smart guy, also likes to read a lot of books, loves music. And I thought, you guys are probably sick of hearing just from me. Let's have somebody else in the mix, too, and see how that goes. So anyway, that's what we're gonna do. This is our first one. We tried it out. I think you're gonna love it, and I know you're gonna love the book. Please check it out. Okay, here's Jeffrey. He called me from his home in New York City. Let, uh, just briefly to set the stage for anyone who doesn't know, you're originally from North Carolina, and you grow up wanting to play playing guitar, wanting to be in a band, and that desire takes you to New York City. And tell us why it didn't take you to L.A. Why New York? Well, it actually
1: took me to Miami first to study music there. They had a great music school at the University of Miami. And before I was there, it was Pat Metheny, Jocko Pastorius, wow. Will Lee, Bruce Hornsby, the Dixie Dregs. So it had a Hiram Bullet. It had quite the reputation. So I wanted to go to Miami. And actually, that answers your question, because I've really hated the weather being warm all the time. Mm-hmm. Growing up in North Carolina, I found... Four seasons, the change of seasons to be very therapeutic. You know, life can be enough of a rut when it's 82 degrees every day. You're like, what's going on here? So I never thought about LA as an option. I, New York just seemed, and I used to have these fights with my LA friends. So I'll do respect to LA lovers, but LA felt like skateboards and surfboards and volleyball and, you know, the beach boys. And New York felt like miles davis and rats and subways and it just i found that more appealing the grittiness of the porno filled times square and i've been to la a few times and i love it out there but i'm a four seasons guy i I like it when it snows i like it when the leaves change so that's why i didn't go to la
0: okay so i mean we should kick it off you're 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 in a band briefly called steps that puts out an ep but all the while your goal is to get caught uh, Is to what is to be a session guy is to start a band and get signed is to get picked up by somebody like sting. Do you have a plan? What are you thinking?
1: No, I, my plan, I didn't want to be a session guy. I wanted to be a rock star. You know, I wanted to have a mansion in LA <laughs> with a guitar shaped swimming pool in the backyard. I, I wanted to be in the police. I wanted to be in Hall and Oates. I wanted to be in U2. So the band we had in North Carolina for five years, we were trying to crack through with the uh, original music, but we were making our money playing covers at proms and campuses and nightclubs. And, you know, I've, I've reflected on that a lot. And it's like when I look back, on, maybe we should have focused ex- uh, exclusively on original music and gotten day jobs. Maybe that was the answer. But we all grew up playing in cover bands. So we did what we did. And that was, that's what paid for the truck and the PA and the lights. And you get caught up in this whole arms race of who's got the biggest PA. And Mm -hmm. so we were playing cover tunes, playing a little bit of original music, but yeah, my goal, I mean, moving to New York to be a sideman was the fallback plan when I could not crack the code and end up on MTV.
0: Okay. Now the Cinderella aspect of your story is that you are selling candy in Broadway on Broadway. In, mm-hmm. on th- in theaters mm-hmm. when you get basically discovered. Um, how long had you been in New York, you know, trying your hand at becoming a musician until your big opportunity came? Well, I would answer not long enough
1: because I it hit, it came too quickly. I moved to New York and said I was going to give it a year. And on the eve of my one year anniversary, I was playing Madison Square Garden with Sting. It's not supposed to happen that way. I had moved to New York and wanted to be, you know, I figured, okay, I'll be a wedding, a guitarist in a wedding band, do whatever, try to, you know, wait my turn to become a session guy, a jingle guy, a sideman, whatever. And I was, yes, I I couldn't make enough money. I couldn't get enough gigs playing weddings. So a friend of mine got me a job selling candy in Broadway theaters. I worked the concession stands in Broadway theaters. And as I point out in my book, Aaron Sorkin was one of my co-workers. So, that's right.
0: Uh, and Cameron Manheim. And the Cameron actress. Manheim,
1: if you know Cameron, yeah. And so, you know, I look back on that with a sense of pride. Aaron was yeah. writing A Few Good Men while he was selling candy on Broadway. That so that's New York, right? And yeah. so I auditioned for a band. Uh, a, you know, I was just trying to work, work the, the field and meet people. And I'm, and the book explains it. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book because people said, "How did a guy who'd been in New York eight months end up in Sting's band?" It made no sense. Mm-hmm. So I finally just I wrote it all down so people I could say read the book because it makes mm-hmm. no sense. It's mm-hmm. luck, tons of luck, everything falling my way. I met a keyboard player who worked with Gil Evans' orchestra and Sting and Gil Evans collaborated on "Little Wing" on "Nothing Like the Sun," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I joined. I auditioned for his band, did not get the gig. I thought, oh, well, that's the way it goes. And then he called me from Paris and said, hey, I've decided I want to use you because the other guy quit. Which, not to digress, but I always say to people, success is so elusive. I had no control over that guy quitting the gig Mm -hmm. so I could become the guitarist. Mm -hmm. You know, you can practice and do all the due diligence. But I had to have a guy quit the gig Mm -hmm. in order for me to get the gig. So, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's divine intervention. I Absolutely. don't
0: know. Yeah.
1: So when he quit or he decided against going to Europe with the band, I went to Europe and we played in Perugia, Italy, which is where the Umbria Jazz Festival is. And Sting and Gil Evans were doing a big concert. So I'm playing in this small little club with Delmar's band and Sting mm-hmm. happens into the club and sees me. I heard after the fact he was there, I didn't see him. I didn't beat him or anything. I came back to New York, went back to selling candy, and got that uh, infamous phone call where they said, "Hey, Sting wants you to audition." Because I was selling candy, yeah, I was selling candy while I was auditioning for Sting and having to try to juggle. I was getting yelled at by my candy boss because <laughs> I was canceling shifts to go play music with Sting.
0: Right, right. Um, Dave, do you have anything in my stepping on you?
2: One question I do have. So. Okay. You mentioned earlier that uh, you feel like success maybe came a little too easily or too early for you. Do you? How do you feel things would have been different had it occurred maybe five or so years on the road?
1: Well, as I say in the book, and I've you know it's funny because we're talking what thirty over thirty years ago that this mm-hmm. happened. And somebody said to me when the book came out, "Why didn't you write this sooner?" And I said, "I didn't understand it sooner. It kind of took me some you know pulling back, from seeing it." And as I said in the book. I guess maybe in the perfect world, it should have happened later. But opportunity knocks when it damn well pleases. Mm -hmm. And I would take too soon over never. Because a Mm -hmm. lot of guys never get to go around the world with anybody, much less somebody like Sting. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it it really weighed on me. But as I've gotten older and more perspective, it's like to me, it's like winning the Super Bowl in your rookie season. It's Mm -hmm. like winning the World Series in your rookie season. I like that. Winning an Oscar in your first film. There's nowhere to go but down. And at the time you go, wow, I've peaked and I'm 29 years old. What am I going to do? But you look up in a few years, and 30 years later, you're still doing it. And you realize now it all starts to make sense. And as I say to people without getting too morbid, you know, when they print your obituary, they say Oscar award winner, a World Series winner or Super Bowl. They don't say what year you did it in. They don't care. It doesn't matter once your life gets played out. Do I wish that it had? if it happened five years into my career, would have I have become his full-time guitarist like Dominic Miller and been with him 20 years, 30 years? Maybe. But maybe I would have died in, a, died in a fiery plane crash too. I don't know. So as I say in the book, at the risk of getting a little zen, you're always exactly where you're supposed to be. So yeah. that's the way I look at it. I'm very philosophical about it. Yeah. I'm just uh, glad I
0: had a chance to do it at all. Absolutely. And so... I mean, we've read the book obviously, but recount briefly for the listeners, you talk about that call, that fateful day of, of, uh, auditioning and everything. Summarize that, that chapter of this whole story for us. I mean, well, you're, you're selling candy and sting calls out of the blue and what?
1: Well, actually I, and I was, I came home from a, a shift of selling candy and the message machine was flashing and I was like pulling off my tie and just hit play. And it's my friend Delmar Brown, who had, you know, uh, I had gone to Europe with, who worked with Gil Evans, and uh, he said, Hey, uh, Sting wants you to audition for his band, called the manager. So that's what happened, and I called the manager and met with him, and he was like, Okay, uh, are you interested in the gig? Yes. Uh, are you married? No. Good. The tour will be long. And I had no idea at the time what that meant. It's funny, today I'll talk to people and they go, yeah, we got a big tour coming up. We're doing 40 dates. And I'm like, we did 181 in a year. <laughs> 40 <laughs> dates. That's that was right. a part of Europe, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, but of course, I'm ecstatic. And as I say in the book, I mean, you know, when I auditioned, I was like, I can't believe I'm getting to meet sting. Forget about playing music with him. So to be in that room with him, I was a huge police fan. And I came to the police late, actually, because I was in Miami in the late 70s studying music and the Bee Gees ruled the roost in Miami. It was all Saturday Night Fever. And I've moved back to North Carolina in 1980. And my girlfriend's brother said, do you like the police? And I'm like, who? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Roxanne, message in a bottle. I'm like, who? Mm -hmm. And he said, check this out. And He put on Zenyatta Mandata. I was like, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I was blown away. So yes. I was a huge police fan, saw them on the Ghost in the Machine tour. Mm-hmm. So to to be in the same room with Sting blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in the book, the, the year before, he had done the Dream of the Blue Turtles tour. And it was Branford Marsalis, Kenny Kirkland, Daryl Jones, mm-hmm. Omar Hakim, And they did a documentary. And I went to the movie theater in North Carolina and saw the documentary and just was totally starstruck, yeah. fanboy. Yeah. I couldn't believe how great those guys were, how great that band was. Yeah. And a year later, I'm hanging out with all those guys and playing with steam. And I just, it, it was really mind blowing that, you know, friends would say to me, people that were c- contemplating moving to New York. They say, Jeff, uh, should I move to New York? And I always tell them you're asking the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. That's like asking a guy who won the lottery. Should I buy a lottery ticket? <laughs>
0: If you're feeling
1: lucky, yeah, but you're asking the wrong guy. It worked out for me. But yeah, I I mean, I literally went from selling candy on Broadway, had to quit that job to join Sting's band. Two weeks from selling candy, I was on Saturday Night Live with Sting, season premiere. A month later, I was in Rio de Janeiro playing in front of 250,000 people. Oh, my
0: gosh.
1: But that's New York. As my book states at the top, Uh, E.D. White, the author, no one should move to New York unless they're willing to be lucky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I am the poster child for that.
0: Two things you say about New York that I love. I wrote them down. First of all, you said you loved living in a city where people like Prince roam free. Yeah. I thought that is so. That's so descriptive. I love that de- description of what New York City is all about. And then you also say it's you're you've moved to the same zip code as your dreams. Mm-hmm. And I thought yeah. those were both fantastic ways to describe. The energy of New York City. And the reason people go there is to hopefully grasp onto that energy and take it for a ride, you know? Well, when you, and, oh, go ahead. Well, I was
1: just gonna say, yeah, I mean, in North Carolina, you would not see Prince walking out no. in nature. That would not <laughs> happen. I mean, and I came to New York and all of a sudden I'm seeing people that I've seen on TV standing in the grocery store buying groceries, hmm. and I, it didn't compute to me. I thought if you're on MTV or a soap opera, you like lived in a different world. I talk mm-hmm. about in the book after we shot the Englishman in New York video and Sting and I walk into his apartment. We're just walking down the street, and I thought, I thought you had to ride in a limo <laughs> if you were Sting. I didn't know you were allowed to walk down the street. Right. But yeah, New York. You know, it's you know they say about the lottery, you can't win if you don't enter. And I felt like moving to New York was buying my lottery ticket, mm-hmm. and to see. People like Prince, and you know, there's a classic line from Keith Richards that I love, and he says, uh, "New Yorkers don't bother famous people because everybody in New York thinks they're famous as well." <laughs> so that's why you will see—I've seen Paul McCartney walking down the street. I've seen Prince. You know, they, they
0: people leave them alone. That's right. That's right. For better that's what or I've worse. Heard.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I want to talk about. So, in reading your book, for the first about half, your 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 depictions of Sting are really. I I find him to be interesting. He seems to be a guy who's clearly very confident, uh, isn't afraid to uh, to offend people. And then later in the book, about I think it was page one eighty three, you you describe that he is uh, his confidence is part of what what makes him nice to everybody. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just Sting as a person. Yeah.
1: Well, I've said that to people. you know his detractors complain about his ego, and I've kind of seen I see his ego as is healthy enough that he's not he's not threatened by other people, mm-hmm. and it manifests himself. I mean, I've definitely seen rock stars that I think are insecure and threatened, and so they're they're constantly tough on everybody. But Sting was uh, equal opportunity. Hey, yeah, everybody in the pool. Because mm-hmm. as i saying seen the book, I think he you know it's impossible to make that guy look bad. He's an incredible talent, incredible songwriter, uh, good looking. I mean, he rules the world. And I mean, who, who has the nerve to surround themselves with Branford Marsalis and Kenny Kirkland. I mean, I, that first band, I mean, I think about Omar Hakim all the time. Mm. He played on let's dance. He played on like a virgin. He played, I'm like, who has the nerve to say, Oh yeah, you have played on all these great tunes. Come play in my band, come yeah. be my employee. Yeah. So I think Sting's ego was an asset in that regard. He he, he seemed very unthreatened. He seemed very secure in his own skin and was happy to have talented people around and let them
0: shine. Uh, I got the impression from sometimes in the way you described him, almost that he was in on that joke that he knew that uh, people almost saw him like royalty Thought his head might be really big. And so he would, it seemed like he would say a lot with like a look you or, mean? you know, or he would play, I don't know if it's up or down, the kind of cold, distant arrogance or whatever, just to sort of send a bolt of frozen lightning through your body, you know, to make you feel it. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I got that well, impression from you.
1: And again, it was hard to be objective because as I say to people, the book I think is a love letter to Sting. I, it's, you know, when I was first trying to find a publisher, and I would say to him, "Well, it's full of humorous anecdotes and poignant revelations," and they would say, "How poignant?" They wanted me to <laughs> dish the dirt on Sting. Uh-huh. And it's like, first of all, I would never do that because you know you don't work again if you do that. Secondly, he's pretty straightforward guy; there wasn't a lot of dirt to dish. Uh, I was the party boy. I was in the party crowd. Sting was healthy and took good care of himself. So I, it was hard to be objective. I mean, I, I thought he walked on water when he, he hired me. He changed my life to this day. The Sting credit uh, makes people, you know, it helps me in professional ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are times now with a little perspective, I'll see certain photos. I'm gonna go, why is he making that face? He looks so arrogant with that face. So right. he does, I think maybe he does play that role. of Let me stick my air in, my nose in the air a little bit and yeah. look like the, uh, you know, but he had a very down to earth side to him. Okay. Like, uh, you know, uh, almost like a, a Cockney thing that he's yeah. going to, I was like Rod Stewart, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be Mr. School teacher all the time, but he, <laughs> you know, he's, He's an amazing guy that he he is very well read, very talented, uh, very good looking. So he he has the complete package.
0: And did he close out every show you ever played with taking his shirt off there at the end? Well,
1: if it wasn't every show, it felt like every show. (laughs) Which, you know, that was his thing, you know. And like I said in the book, if you got it, flaunt it. You know, he he was in great shape. But uh, as I said in the book, the final show when he peeled his shirt off, the the tour manager had hired two bodybuilders to rush out on stage and stand beside <laughs> him, so right. it was hilarious because these guys are like flexing and <laughs> right, and trying to like you know mock Sting and you know he he had a good sense of humor. He,
0: good. He, he had a thick skin. Okay, why do you think? What was it that? Why did Sting hire you? He obviously could have hired anyone he wanted, and he hired you. Did someone put in a good word for you? Do you think? Do you think he was sold by uh, Delmar? Well, I think there's a lot of things at play, and I talk about it in the book. Uh,
1: his first band was f- filled with all stars—guys with resumes that had Weather Report, Miles Davis, et cetera, on their uh, resume. So I think he had a, a little bit of trouble, from what I've heard, keeping. You know, there was a lot of butting of heads with the all-star lineup. So as I uh, say in the book, half jokingly. He was, the, I think he and his manager were probably tired of dealing with the, the somebodies. They wanted a nobody to deal with. So that probably played in my favor. I remember hearing criticism. I don't know if this is, I don't. I would say it's not valid, but I remember there was criticism that his entire band was black and he was white. Mm. And I think there were some people that didn't like the the optics of the Blue Turtles band. Mm. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, I remember hearing that criticism. So obviously check that box too. I'm white. So it, it checked that box. I'm a nobody. I'm white. So it maybe uh you know took away some it deflected some of that criticism. But I have a friend who who claims that you could put a hundred people in a room, not let them speak to each other, and they literally pick up on each other's vibrations and kind of pair off of who gets along. So mm-hmm. you know, people say, Yeah, we were vibing, and I get it. It's the vibrations. I think. At the end of the day, all those other things considered, I had a vibe that he liked. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. youthful. He jokes about my youthful appearance. He said, I'm 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he just saw like a fresh faced young guy that nobody knew. Mm -hmm. And he thought, and and again, as he said in the book, the day he hired me, he said, I'm going to make you famous. I think he enjoyed being the kingmaker in that regard. And Mm -hmm. while I'm not famous, damn, if my phone hasn't rung for 30 plus years Mm -hmm. and When it comes down to you and the last guy, a lot of times people go, let's hire the guy that Sting liked.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't know why he hired me. It was probably a combination of all those things. But as I mentioned in the book, I think Sting's manager, Miles Copeland, wanted me gone. And they even auditioned other players when we were in London at Christmas. And I go, I don't know why Sting stuck up for me and kept me in the band. I guess he just liked me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's why I get into talking about people skills I remember a VH1 behind the music with Huey Lewis in the news and the tour manager said, I don't care how good you are, if you're a jerk, I don't want you on that's the right. bus. Yeah, that's right. So you have to get along with people. It's yeah. you know, people's skills are important. Everybody can play. Yeah. But if you're a pain in the butt, nobody wants you around. So
2: they might have kept you around because your tennis game was strong.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or not strong, depending on how oh. you want to look at it. <laughs> we are pretty evenly
0: matched. Good. What do you what kind of small talk do you make with sting and are you i mean i i remember from the book you at first it's probably like pins and needles you don't want to like you said bother the king or anything like that but eventually are you comfortable shooting the breeze with sting or if he gets mad at you about something are you able to be like lay off buddy you know i mean could does it ever get to that dynamic
1: i would say no okay in a very simplified way i never felt that way i mean if i sing him that see him now i'm still you know, mm-hmm. uh, intimidated. I mean, he's Sting, the rock star that I loved uh, watching on MTV. And I mentioned the book, whereas Brantford and Kenny and Mino, the percussionists, they were more peers with Sting. They had the huge resume to fall back on. They had played on the album, they were a part of the creative process. So there was a real bond there that me being brought in. I mean, the, if you remember Sting's first, The Dream of Blue Turtles, he played guitar on that tour. There was no guitarist in the Dream of the Blue Turtles band. He was the guitarist. Mm -hmm. And I've been told that his goal was to play guitar on the Nothing Like the Sun album. And he maybe got frustrated. And then you look and who's on the album, and it's Mark Knopfler, Andy Summers, Eric Clapton, Mm -hmm. Iron Bullock. He brought in a lot of other players. And I think maybe once the album came out, he's like, you know, I got to hire a bit of a gunslinger. Not that I Mm -hmm. see myself as a gunslinger, Mm -hmm. but uh, he I don't think that he felt like he could cover it uh but anyway the other guys in the band were very comfortable with him but i was always you know yeah sir yes sir and and i still feel that way today i don't know if that ever goes away
0: i bet do you have anything dave
2: i watched the performance of you guys playing in buenos aires so what what did he normally play because in the book you mentioned the synthesizer uh and i think you mentioned a uh uh, what instrument do you uh, swing like that? Tambourine. Tambourine, thank you. Well, he, he, played
1: a, he, he also played a lot of classical guitar. He had a classical guitar. He did. It's funny, okay. if you watch Saturday Night Live, which we did, was one of our first gigs before we yeah. ever went on tour, and I'd forgotten this. And on Little Wing, I play guitar and he just sings. But we also do, we'll be together, and he's playing electric guitar. He's playing a Paul Reed Smith guitar. I was like, wow, I don't even remember. And I've seen some film of us in South America, maybe in Rio, when we first started the tour and he was playing electric guitar. I was like, wow, I forgot he played electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Cause he just kind of moved into the nylon string, mm-hmm. which, you know, fits in with, you know, his kind of mm-hmm. world music kind of thing, you know, kind of smooth sound. So mm-hmm. he played some synth, some acoustic guitar sang, you know, was mm-hmm. the ringleader, but he played guitar. He's a fine guitarist. Yeah. <laughs> I can't play the part on bring on the night. He, you know, the finger picking thing that he yeah. plays on it. Like, uh, I don't know. I can't do that. I would have to practice that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Speaking of guitar parts, you mentioned in the book that Sting says he taught Andy Summers the guitar parts in the police. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I thought uh, here's, a, I, I'll be honest, Jeff. I, I I'm a Sting. I don't know if I'm a Sting fan or not. I was a Sting fan. I was a big police fan yeah. and I liked those first two Sting albums. And then it gets a little too soccer mom ish. Yeah, for me,
1: I agree. I think it went too too smooth, too smooth, jazzy, world yep. beat kind of thing. Yeah, and and then uh, you know, I used to complain, oh man, and I'd mention in the book, I wish he'd just go back to his lean, mean rock and roll. Say, but then he did, but he did the fifty seventh and ninth record. And I was like, uh, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> I did not like that record.
0: And I, I know, like, me neither. Oh, it didn't shit. feel natural, you know. Well, so I. The-
1: Yeah, Yeah. I guess he was trying to capture that spontaneity that the early records have. But, you know, I don't care who it is, whether it's any rock star, Paul McCartney, you can't recapture that magic of the Beatles. And I don't think he can recapture the police. Uh, uh, And ironically, and that's what I say to people his Broadway show, The Last Ship, if you listen to the cast recording that, there's things on that, and in my opinion, rock harder than his rock stuff. And, it but it's acoustic piano and vocals and very dramatic, but I don't know. There's a, you know, once these guys become multimillionaires, they're trying to recapture that angst, mm-hmm. but that when you're Kurt Cobain and or Nirvana, and you've got mm-hmm. 10 days to make this record in a low budget, it's very right. different than when you're King of the Hill. Right. But I, but I agree. I, I, I still think the dream of the blue turtles is his best solo record. Me too. Now, I, I don't know all of his solo records, mm-hmm. And it's funny because I would do weddings up here post Sting, which was felt like cruel and unusual punishment. But when I came back to New York and I started over again, you know, I'd walk by Madison Square Garden on my way to a, a $50 gig and go, Oh, yeah, I remember playing in there. Harsh, <laughs> but, you know, but that's good. I learned a lot from it. But yeah. I would show up on gigs, cover gigs, and people would call Fields of Gold or something like that. I went, like, I don't know that, too. Like, but you played with Sting. I like that record was not out when I played with right, Sting. And right. I think people think that I stayed i uh-huh. reading this Sing, Sting-centric life posting. And I say, it's like keeping pictures of your wife after you're divorced. You don't keep those pictures on the mantle. You move on with your life. Right. Say, hey, man, you want to go see Sting at the Beacon Theater? I'm like, if he calls me and invites me backstage with a backstage <laughs> pass, I'd be happy to go. Right. Do think I'm going to go pay $75 and sit in the balcony and cheer right. on a guy that I used to be on stage with. It doesn't work that way. No, no way. And I don't mean to sound I'm not bitter. No, it makes sense. This doesn't work that way
0: yeah makes sense yeah. uh what i was going to ask is did you learn anything else you being a big police fan did you learn any other inside scoops on police songs or dynamics within the band or whatever that you can share or want to share or
1: well you mentioned earlier when you said sting taught the guitar parts to andy and first of all let's be very clear andy was a well-established guitarist yes
0: that's what with. i kind of at andy, that.
1: and could play but mm-hmm. i just said andy's Sound and parts were a big influence on me and Sting kind of got a little defensive and said, I taught Andy those parts. And I don't doubt that he did. He probably wrote every breath you take with that arpeggio or message in a bottle. I'm sure Sting conceptualized that and showed those parts to Andy, but Andy put his own stamp on it, of course. But so they're, they're both true. I didn't really learn a lot about the police. I do talk in the book. We were in Los Angeles playing the forum and both Andy and Stuart were backstage. And I was like, Wow all three police here, you know, and the band had only been broken up what three years at that point. So it was still a big deal. And Sting's manager asked Sting, Hey, you want to play a song with Stuart and Andy? He said, Nope. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, as I said in the book, uh, if there was any sentimentality there, Sting was yeah. took the pragmatic route and said, I'm here to do my solo stuff. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't really get to know either of those guys, uh, you know, I didn't really get a lot of, and it's interesting when Sting's book came out, was it broken music? I was really excited mm-hmm. to read it and learn about the police. It's very little about the police. It's about mm-hmm. Sting's childhood and his, you know, mm-hmm. you know, coming of age. So I, I don't really know a lot about the
0: police. Yeah. I, a few years ago, I read all three of their books back to back to back. And um, Andy's was my favorite because it went the most in depth. Stuart, as you probably know, is one page. Uh, mm-hmm. The whole the whole police section is one page on, pr- on purpose, and mm-hmm. it's all, you know, we met, wrote songs, put out an album. He writes it purposely like that because he just doesn't want to get into it anymore, you know? I, I
1: couldn't get through Stuart's book. Yeah. Too much Polo in, in Argentina for me. Yeah. I, I'm <laughs> moving on. I, I don't care, you know? Uh, oh, loved, that's good. <laughs> I thought Andy's book was really good.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, me
1: too. I, didn't, I couldn't get through Stuart's book. There's a funny story. I was playing, I had a, a some musicians I work here with, and somehow we ended up playing the wedding for Fish's road manager. Hmm. And it was a big deal, actually, because it was this great band of Sean Pelton on drums from Saturday Night Live, incredible drummer. My friend Jeff Kazee, who's worked with Bon Jovi and Southside Johnny. Anyway, we were playing the party for Fish's road manager. He was also Stuart Copeland's road manager. So in the audience that night, all the guys from Fish and Stuart and it was Fish got up and played a tune, and they were broken up at the time. So it was the next day, Rolling Stone.com, Fish reunites. Mm-hmm. And Trey Anastasio, you know, I let him use my rig, and he's afterwards, he's like, hey, I turned this knob and I turned that. And I'm like, it's cool, Trey. Don't <laughs> worry about it. You know, he was being such the gentleman. Mm-hmm. So Stuart, I see him standing over at the bar, and I, I decided I want to walk over and say hello to him. And uh, Stuart got up and played some tunes later with us. But uh, before he played with us, uh, I walked over to him. and reintroduced myself told him we had met and I'd play guitar with sting on the son. And he was very chilly to me. Mm. I was like, I was kind of disappointed. Mm-hmm. But like you say, he didn't even talk about the police in his book. But mm-hmm. when I went back to the bandstand I told the sax player on the gig, I said, wow, Stuart was pretty chilly. He says, Stuart thinks of sting as his bass player. Stuart does <laughs> not care that you played in sting's band. <laughs> sting is his bass player. Interesting. And there's a, you know, you, I don't think that, you know, you watch all those, especially the later interviews with those guys, tons of uh, Mm -hmm. animosity and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know.
0: Big egos.
1: Big egos. And poor Andy. I mean, when the piece reunited and Andy's trying to like, I'm out of this. (laughs) Stuart and Sting are just going at each other. it's probably because they're too much alike. But uh, Stuart, he's a sound innovator. When you hear him playing drums, you know it's him. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to be proficient on your instrument it's nothing to redefine the instrument mm-hmm. whether it's eddie van halen or Jimi hendrix mm-hmm. i'm not saying stewart's the eddie van halen or Jimi hendrix of drums but boy you hear stewart and you, you know, know his it's yeah. that's and true I, and I, I i love his playing on those records just smoking in my opinion yeah
2: yeah you, you mentioned john bon jovi um and then casually in the book you mentioned that you used to teach john bon jovi guitar lessons do you that's, can, you, can you expand upon that uh yeah and it's funny cuz
1: somebody had asked me about that and they thought that that I meant a long time ago but no was John was completely established rock star and a friend of mine was playing keyboards with him on the Have a Nice Day tour my friend mm-hmm. Jeff Casey who we did the the fish Stuart Copeland wedding for mm-hmm. and uh Jeff called me and said hey I got a guitar student for you and I knew he'd been in in London with Bon Jovi so I figured cuz John has four kids I figured it's one of John's kids and he said I said, who? And he said, John Bon Jovi. And sure enough, the next day I get a phone call, my cell phone rings, I answer, and he goes, Hey, Jeff, John Bon Jovi, uh, I hear you're a good guitar teacher. Would you like to be, get together? So I said, Yes, yeah, sure. So we, I went down and we did a guitar lesson. John could already play. He's just you know taking his downtime to try to polish his skills. And I admire that in any musician to try to improve, especially when your bank account is really full, getting the people to be motivated enough to improve. I admire that. And John is a hardworking guy. And so we became pals and hung out for a, a few years and did guitar lessons here and there and uh, it was a, a cool experience and it was fun for me because i was at this point maybe almost 20 years removed from sting so it was cool to be back in that situation where you're hanging out at a rock star's house and mm-hmm. hanging out backstage with him at a show or hanging out at the beach with him it was you know he's a nice guy we had a lot of fun and he was a hard worker he wanted to sure. be a better guitarist
0: Okay, let's get, let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk about groupies and drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And I always say that because you touch on them in the book. I'm not, I'm, you know, my understanding is that you had a girlfriend. Was her name Denise? Correct. That's right. But you know, what happens on the road, maybe stays on the road. I'm not sure. So there's there's an incident of you and Steve Coleman, I think fighting over the same groupie. There was an incident, I think of you Hooking up with a groupie who maybe wasn't that attractive but was available, and there was some fallout from that. What, what uh, and all of this, Denise just knows my boyfriend's well, a rock star. And well, let me be very clear
1: my relationship with Denise was
0: kind of casual, we
1: did not okay. live together. Hmm. She lived in her apartment, I lived in mine. We dated, I mean, okay. we had, so. I mean, I'm not a complete scoundrel.
0: Okay. Uh, (laughs) You don't seem like one at all, Jeff, but that's why I had to ask. Yeah. uh,
1: I mean, would she be, you know, it's what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It was don't ask, don't tell kind of. And again, I mean, I know guys that had a groupie, you know, every night in every town. I was, people would be disappointed in my track record with casual sex on the road. Uh, And. As far as the thing with Steve Coleman, we weren't fighting. He threw a punch. That's Ah, all that happened. So let me be very clear. He accused me of trying to steal his girlfriend or his, not a girlfriend at all, an acquaintance in London. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, words became heated. And then he punched me in the mouth as we sat on the tarmac at Heathrow Airport, which was, you know, great rock and roll story. I just happened to be on the receiving end (laughs) of the fisticuff. But uh, so, no, we weren't fighting over a girl. He just... and decided to punch me in the mouth is as far as the other, you know, it's funny because I have seen people say, Oh yeah, the groupies and the one night stands, you know, act like I said, for being on the road a year, there weren't that many notches on my belt, but they do make it into the book.
0: Sure. Uh, And you talk about struggling with alcoholism, which I don't, I didn't get the impression you knew then that that's what, even what was happening to you, just probably living like a rock star.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I had a friend that one time speculated because my drinking posting got so out of control they had to quit. I I stopped drinking decades ago. But uh, at the time, you're in your late 20s. You just think you're partying. You don't realize you're developing this chemical dependency that's going to unravel your life. But one friend had said, yeah, I think the Sting gig kind of exacerbated, you know, lit the fuse. But man, I started drinking when I was 13, playing in fraternity parties in North Carolina. And oh. getting drunk felt like a rite of passage. It made me feel like an adult. It made me feel like a rocker. So, I mean, I talk about in the book before we went on the road. And me, Amino Sinelou, Sting's percussionist, a Frenchman, he said, "Oh, I'm going to teach you how to drink when we're on the road." And I was like, "I already know how to drink." So, I'm not blaming any of that on Sting. I, I was a, a a hardcore drinker, or well, not hardcore, but you know, the drinking really got out of control when I came back home, had a pile of money, was single didn't have a job. And I was like, let's party. And I discovered that the best cure for a hangover was a, a hair of the dog, mm-hmm. that Bloody Mary or that mimosa or whatever at brunch takes mm-hmm. the edge off. Mm-hmm. So I start. I realized it was like, Oh yeah, it's about maintenance, that nice buzz throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what happened. And, you know, it didn't just got so out of control, I had to stop. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I drank as much when I was in cover bands playing fraternities in North Carolina, as I did on the Sting Tour.
0: I so some, something I've always wondered why do, and, and I would probably ask you the same thing if you were a professional athlete why go out to a club every single night? It seems like I, I'm more of a homebody. I mm-hmm. would want to go back to my hotel and get in bed and put on a movie and, you know, eat a, drink a Coke and go to sleep. But it seems like nobody in your position, whether they be a you know a basketball player or a rock star on tour or whatever, wants to do that. Everyone goes home from the gig and they all immediately go back out and party in some loud environment, drinking. What's the appeal of doing that night after night after night?
1: Well, you're in a new city usually, and so you're the toast of the town. Mm-hmm. You know, in every place, it's like every day's your birthday. Mm. You know, <laughs> every day's your hey, congratulations, you graduated, you're getting married, you're, it's your birthday. Every day is a party because you get to a new town and people like Sting that have been around the world enough realize that is a sucker's bet. They wouldn't do that. He would go home you know, and and rest. Mm-hmm. But to me, and again, in my defense, I was in my early 20s. Now you couldn't get me. I mean, I see videos of Las Vegas and velvet ropes and limousines and bottle service I'm going, mm-hmm. you couldn't pay me to go to one of those places. Mm-hmm. I went to LA. It was funny because I hadn't gone out there in a long time. And I went out there a few years ago to visit some friends. And uh, my friend said, what do you want to do We out here? I said, I want to go to Hollywood and check it out. And boy, it was eye opening to go down Sunset Strip in my 50s as opposed to in my 20s. I thought that was the coolest place on earth when I was 20s. I felt like I was in the middle of a Kardashian show when I went to these hotels, you know, on Sunset Strip or whatever. I was like, get me out of here. So it was, it was youthful ignorance, a lot of it. And just, you know, you do it cause you can. Uh, now I, I wouldn't dream of doing that. And most rockers that have survived, they don't, they don't do that either. I mean, it's,
0: yeah, it's just for the young,
1: it's like, it's like being a freshman in college You're just, you know, you're, you're making all the mistakes and getting and it is for the young. And I, I wouldn't, I didn't really care about going to clubs. We'd hang out in the hotel room and empty the mini bar night after night, we'd sit in the hotel bar till last call and then go upstairs. It was just, a lot of drinking but mm-hmm. the social thing I mean I did it some but mm-hmm. uh, it was just it was the self medicating and I, I did an interview with somebody that said well you always hear that celebrities want to recreate the high from the stage mm-hmm. so they're chasing it you know with drugs or alcohol I said I don't really see it that way I see it as, as self-medication and numbing yourself mm-hmm. because it's kind of exhausting which is stupid to drink if you're exhausted but you do you're lonely and you know I've had people criticize me like oh, boo-hoo, you're on the road with a rock star. I'm, I'm like, well, go give it yeah. a try and let me know how much you like it. Right. Uh, it's, I've had a lot of people write me, fellow musicians that have read the book, and said, man, I totally identify with you're out there with this dream gig and you're unhappy. And you're on a gig that most people would kill to do and you don't want to tell them, this thing is really not as much fun as you would think. It is at first. But uh, I, I, t- I looked at it as more as just trying to stay comfortably numb. You're facing a 12-hour flight. And then when you get to Japan, you got another three-hour flight or Australia. Who wants to experience 24 hours on an airplane? Give me a pill. Give me a drink. Mm -hmm. And wake me when it's over. So it was really more about, I think, numbing myself. At the time, I didn't realize it. I was also, I don't like flying. I was afraid to fly. So that helped, you know, tamp down my anxieties. Mm -hmm. I talk about my book, claustrophobic. And I'm living in hotels for a year, taking the elevator to the 30th floor all the time in elevators and airplanes constantly so give me a drink just you know make it go away yeah
0: mm-hmm. i would imagine partying with branford marsala's has to be kind of fun though
1: he doesn't party i mean i mean i think he's in later in life i see him tweeting from time to time about a, a good scotch he's stumbled onto or single malt or something like that but no branford was pretty clean as a whistle
0: he, okay i loved him was,
1: there was there was two camps the healthy guys and the party guys. And I fell in <laughs> with the party guys. Got it. Brantford, I mentioned in the book, I mean, he thought we were stupid, you know, mm-hmm. partying and staying up all night and being hung over for the next day. He, he liked playing basketball and watching sports. And mm-hmm. he, just, he was not into it at all. He was, he was a very, lived very healthy.
0: Good. The other one, uh, Dolette McDonald is one of my favorite people uh, yeah. in the world. I had her on here. was it a year or two, two years ago, I think. First of all, I had a big crush on her back when she was singing for staying. I thought she was so yeah. cute in those videos and everything. Oh. And uh, she was just the nicest person. She was so yeah. great. Yeah.
1: She came to town a couple of years ago. She's living down south now. Mm-hmm. And, and we had lunch together. And it was so great to hang out with her and see her. And she's, you know, she was, when I was on tour with her, she kind of kept to herself. We didn't do a lot of hanging out. She's like, she read the book. She's like, where was I when all <laughs> this was happening? And I was like, you're probably in your hotel room being smart, mm-hmm. avoiding the, the shenanigans. But yeah, she, she's great. And you talk about having the crush on her with the videos to this day. I mean, every once in a while, I'll just dial up the set them free video and watch it. Cause I think it's one of the coolest videos ever. And right. Cause you know, they're all superimposed and Daryl's in black and white. Branford's in stop motion. Mm-hmm. Dolette's in stop motion. And they're all it, uh, that video to me to, he looks as modern mm-hmm. and as artistic as anything I see. Mm-hmm. I just love that video. Yeah, her and her short white shorts on that video. Very love sexy.
0: Yeah. I uh, was going to tell you too. Just uh, I I sent you a picture. My dad died recently of COVID, and um, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. It happens. I lost,
1: I lost my father this year too. Thank Ooh. God it wasn't COVID because it's been yeah. rough enough. Uh, yeah. he had a heart
0: attack and died. And oh yeah, man,
1: he's one of my best friends. And
0: yeah, yeah. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at my mom's house, you know, helping her clean stuff up or whatever. And she had gone through a storage unit and pulled out a bunch of stuff. And some of it was mine. And there was a box of VHS tapes of things I had recorded off HBO back in the 80s. And there was the Human Rights Now concert Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I had recorded that I used to watch all the time. But I was, I realized, I pulled it up on YouTube again today. I realized I only ever... I mostly watched the Used to Endure set mm-hmm. at the beginning because it was so amazing. That guy with like the, the drum thing that he plays on his shoulder mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love that thing. So for the first time in years, I watched the Sting section and it doesn't, you, you don't even get, a, I don't know if you even got any camera time on that. It's mostly Sting doing and Peter Gabriel dancing with the ladies on this on the stage.
1: Is it that's in Argentina? I guess yeah. Maybe
0: Buenos Aires, the
1: last show. There's actually a box set that Amnesty did that has mm. their other tours, and it's actually interesting because they show a lot of behind the scenes stuff with us, you know, traveling in Africa and. Again, Bill Graham was the promoter or the, you know, the lead guy on that. So, you know, you see Bill Graham climbing down the stairs of the jet in Africa or whatever. A lot of cool background footage. Yeah, Yusu, he had a very unique thing. I loved his band and Peter Gabriel's band the best. And it was funny because Yusu was, you know, most people like who? But when we got to Western Africa, he was the king. And Bruce and Sting had to step aside and let Yusu... Close out the night, mm-hmm. so it was cool to see him finally get his due. We went to yeah. Cote d'Ivoire, which I guess is kind of near Senegal. Mm. My geography's not great, but uh, it was the Amnesty tour was really cool. And yeah. as I mentioned in my book, you know, most tours you do the same kind of spots: Western Europe, South America, and the fact that I got to go to India and Africa was really amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: Dave, do you have any questions you want to insert?
2: I, I, I'd love to hear more about the posting life and just in terms of the various gigs you've done, whether it's Broadway or indie recording or uh, uh, jingles in terms of what you liked, what was the most lucrative? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well,
1: Broadway, and I mentioned in the book, I've kind of felt like, even though I I did not come to New York to play in musical theater, I couldn't care less Mm -hmm. about it. Seemed too redundant and all that. But as my friend, I ended up between Sting and then for 10 years, basically, I did freelance work, indie artists, jingles when I could get them, a lot of weddings, and then I started doing Broadway, which I live in the neighborhood, which is very convenient. I've really liked the known quantity of Broadway. I like knowing, okay, we play at 8.05 every night. These are the songs we're going to play. I really like the structure of it, and and I was kind of, and I needed money, and it was a good-paying gig, a union gig with benefits and pension. But then I stumbled into Mamma Mia, which ran 14 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I say to people, "Well, Sting is the crown jewel on my resume, but really, Mamma Mia was the gig of a lifetime Mm -hmm. because I got paid every week for 14 years, mm -hmm. 700 paychecks, right? To walk 10 minutes, sit down and play Dancing Queen and a few other hits, and come home. Mm -hmm. It really changed the trajectory of my financial security, which." Mm -hmm is big for a musician. It's hard to uh, you know, I know a lot of guys that struggle still. Uh, so I like Broadway. It fit with my with my sobriety, with my I like things calm and known quantities. I'm not the um, I've, I've kind of developed this theory where I look at rock and rollers as cowboys, the guys that come into town and shoot up the saloon and have a blast. and, and I said, I'm more of a sheriff. I like being in the studio. I like being in the orchestra pit. You know, no surprises. Let's just be really professional and get this done. And to each his own. I have certain friends that would kill themselves if they had to play the same show every night. Mama Mia, I, we just saw, we figured out, man, we played Dancing Queen a lot more times than Abba has ever played Dancing Queen. We played it two and a half times a show for 14, eight shows a week for 14 years. Right. I'm sure Benny and Bjorn did not play Dan- Dancing Queen that many times. But as the guitar player at Mamma Mia said to me, and and I heard this loud and clear, he said, You know Our friends that make fun of us playing the same thing every night said, go on the road with Madonna or Lady Gaga, let me know when the set list changes. Mm -hmm. And he's right. Mm -hmm. Because now concerts are supposed to look like the video and they're choreographed within an inch of their life. Mm -hmm. I went and saw Hall & Oates a few years back here at the Beacon Theater. They didn't turn off the lights in between songs. They talked. They discussed, hey, what do you want to play next? I was like, wow, this is so refreshing. And even when I look at old Sting videos, we look like the beginning, you know, rock and roll and jazz and stretching out and goofing off and having fun. You go see, I had a friend who was on tour with Don Henley and he said, if soon as you decided that you had to make a change in the show, everybody's computers came out and they're <laughs> typing everything in to change the lighting and change the tracking and change. So those shows are, you know, a rock tour is very, the only difference between that and a Broadway show is you don't do it eight times a week, mm-hmm. but you have to fly in between every show. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's right. Uh, go on the road with Lady Gaga and let me know when the set list
0: changes because yeah. it doesn't. Your book, um, when I was reading your book, it, it it almost felt to me a little bit like reading a murder mystery because the whole time you're wanting to know how it ends, you know, and I was fighting the urge of just going straight to the back and saying, okay, what where what becomes of Jeffrey Lee Campbell? I have to know, and but I wanted to experience it from beginning to end. And so, yes, folks, what happens is, you know, eventually you would think... Unfortunately, no other big gigs came your way after Sting, but eventually, like you said, you found your way in Broadway and you've been doing it ever since. I had a question for you. Do you have kids? No kids. I thought so. Because uh, people like Dave and I who have kids, we we aren't able to do the fun things that you're able to do.
1: (laughs) No, I I discuss that with people. Uh, Bonnie Raitt said one time, being a musician is the ultimate arrested development. And I will totally agree with that then take away the fact i've never been a dad so i'm not an authority figure to anybody so i still feel like i'm about 28 years old uh right and i had a friend that said that at me one time she says you know when you're yelling at your 16 year old daughter you realize you can't be 16 also you're, the math is inescapable right you're like well if i'm yelling at my teenager i guess i'm no longer a teenager but right. i don't have any teens to yell at so I kind of still feel like, you know, my knees creak a little bit or whatever, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you know,
0: i, yeah. as I well, was it's said, freed you playing up. playing guitar. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say it's freed you up to live this adventurous, amazing life.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I have a lot of friends with kids and I, and I see a real special thing there that may be missing in my life, but uh, it, you know, Again, we're always exactly where we're supposed to be. I don't know. I, I, if I had, sometimes I think I, if I had it to do all over again, I would do my life completely different. Mm-hmm. And But that's easy to say once you've been around the world with Sting and worked on Broadway for 20 years. And, you know, you open up the blinds in the morning, the Empire State Building staring at you. And you go, ah, it's not that important. It sure as hell was important when I lived in North Carolina to describe mm-hmm. a lifestyle like that. Mm-hmm. So it's like people that are rich telling you, oh, money doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You've got money. <laughs> So I don't want to dismiss what I've done in my life, but I will say, I wish it had a little more balance in it, but I don't know that when you're trying to be excellent, balance really fits in. Mm -hmm. Whether you're Neil Armstrong or Tiger Woods, there's not a lot of balance in that life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the price you pay trying to be excellent. And I really think my skills are kind of mid-pack and people think, oh, you're being self-deprecating. And I'm like, I'm not really. Mm -hmm. I've been around enough Mozarts to know where my skills are. I say to people all the time, they go, but you're in New York. You played with Sting. You're in Broadway. I go, just because I'm on the Chicago Bulls doesn't mean I'm Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Okay. I've got on a Bulls jersey. I'm not Michael. Mm -hmm. And I see that and I accept that. So I'm happy to be a role player, a guy down the bench. Mm -hmm. And that's been fine. But because of my skills being kind of mid-pack, it's kept me humble It made me work really hard, but I've had to work so hard. I'm missing some balance in my life. I have a friend who's a drummer. He says, you need a hobby, Jeff, get a hobby. But my hobby has been trying to compete in the music business. Mm -hmm. But I am, I had a friend recently ask, Jeff, what's on your bucket list? And he thought I was going to say playing with Paul McCartney. And I said, playing Frisbee with my dog on the beach. Mm. I said, I don't have a dog or a Frisbee, (laughs) but that's my goal at this point. And that's, that's not, you know. I've been in this business a long time and I've seen a lot of great things. I would have signed up for half of the things. If you'd said, here's half of these things, will you be a musician? I would have said, where do I sign? Mm-hmm. So I've been more than blessed. I've yeah. had a lot of cool experiences and I've had a lot of fun, but I'm ready to move to kind of a different part of my life and yeah. maybe worry about my tomato plants. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote that book. I loved writing the book. I'm actually writing a follow-up book. My, oh, fun. my publisher had said, Jeff, you're in New York. It's COVID. You got to write another book. And mm-hmm. I thought, I don't want to write another book. I don't want to write a book about COVID, but I'll do interviews with people and I'll tell an Aretha Franklin anecdote or Sammy Davis Jr. Anecdote. And they go, wow, is that in the book? And I'm like, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. And I realized, wow, I only played with Sting one year. Mm -hmm. I've been playing guitar for many years. So I'm writing a book. I'm pretty far along. I don't know when it's going to be out because I'm kind of, the ending has, the ending is going to be Broadway reopening. And it has to happen before I can write it. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping December is what I'm being told at this point. Because I do have work waiting on the other side. I just started a brand new show when the shutdown hit. We played three shows and boom. And now I've been out of work 13 months and counting. And it's probably be about 20 months before all is said and done. Oh, man. Uh, so the ending of the book is going to be Broadway's reopening. But I have to get there to finish it. But I haven't gone back and looked at what led me to the Sting gig and what happened posting, the good and the bad, whether it's bad wedding gigs or working with Aretha Franklin at Radio City Music Hall. Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed writing. I was thinking okay. today, like, at this point, I kind of identify more with Hemingway than Jimi Hendrix. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the way I feel. I've played a lot of guitar. I like writing. I really enjoy it. It's just you and the
2: computer. Yeah.
1: No yeah. wah-wahs or anything like that. It's just fake. Right. Like, can you well, let us, us know when
2: the new book going? comes out. We'd love to have you back on.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. I was hoping for Christmas time, but now with Brawl, I've been told Brawl we would be back in September, but now they're hedging their bets and moving it more towards December. Yeah. But yeah, there's. I, I go back can read it, and I, I you know, I, I talk about living through 9/11 here because mm-hmm. we had just started. Ma, we started Mom Mia right after 9/11. We didn't know mm-hmm. what was happen. When I was in college, I spent a week working with Sammy Davis Jr., who I went in thinking our oh, cheesy Vegas act, left going, he's a god. So, you know, tons of great stories that didn't make the Sting book. I want to keep it kind of tight, but just looks at all the other stuff. And the way Broadway works, the ups and downs
0: of that. Interesting. Yeah. Let us know. I can't wait to read that, too. We'll do this again.
1: You know, I I look at it. It's hard when you're creating anything, you know, Uh, talking about Greg Renoff. I always love how the Doobie Brothers thought (laughs) minute by minute was a horrible record. Nobody knows. I think the book's good.
0: Yeah, it's great. Uh, okay. Before we let him go, any last questions from you, Dave? Anything we I'm haven't good. covered? I'm good. Okay. Um, we should establish one just because of the business side of this. How much you say in the book, so I'm going to ask you f- flat out, how much did you get paid to play with Sting?
1: You know, I mentioned it, I'm very frank in the book, it was $2,500 a week. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you go out on the road now, there's other bands paying less than that now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, you flew private jets, I would imagine that would be a major transition in your life to go from that kind of a lifestyle to back to flying coach and back to lugging your own bags around and all that kind of stuff. That can't be easy. And nice. one of the thing you mentioned, too, was that, for instance, I, I recently read Tessa Niles' yeah, book. Yeah, it's a great book. Great it book. is a great book. Um, the Stevie Ray
1: Vaughan's story alone is
0: worth the book. yes. Break. Yes. I met Tussle Um, on the road and incredible. Really? Yeah. She was saying that I think at the end of one of the tours with Eric Clapton, I believe it was, he gave her a gift of like, I want to say like 150,000 bucks or something (laughs) like that. And that that was commonplace that at the end of a big long tour, the main act sort of gives everyone like a bonus or a going away present. But uh, Sting was a little, his wallet wasn't quite as flush.
1: I don't know. I don't, I mean... As I mentioned in the book, I haven't gotten a six-figure tip since right. then.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, uh, thanks for talking with us, Jeff. It was a lot of Good fun. Time. I love the book, and I really hope people will find it and read it and give it a shot because it it's a blast. It answers so many questions that a regular people like Dave and I might think, I wonder what life is really like. You know, What if you went from something to the big time in no time, and your book illustrates that?
1: Well, that's, I I think it's, you know, it's not a musician book. I think anybody can enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, getting lucky and dealing with it.
0: All right, guys, there you have it. Do Stand So Close by Jeffrey Lee Campbell. Get on Amazon. I put a link directly to it in the description of the show. Get on there, check it out. Get the Audible, whatever you want to do. Get it on your Kindle, but check it out because it is so much fun. And it is, I mean... This really speaks to what the origin of the hustle was in the beginning. You kind of go from nowhere to something and then kind of back to normal again. And what is that transition like? And his book details it so well. Reminds me a little bit of that Jacob Slichter book from Semisonic, uh, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, which is one of my favorite music-related books ever, about just what it's like behind the scenes when being thrust into the spotlight like this happens to you it's so fascinating anyway thank you jeffrey for talking and i think we're going to try and do another one of these uh dave and i are reading the next book now and uh hopefully we'll do another one of these in a month or two okay let us know what you think if you like it and feel free to uh, recommend some things if you want I-, I can't promise we'll get to all of them but we'll try okay thanks everybody